0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Eighteen million Americans have no Internet access at all.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy, surveillance, law, and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben has the story of the FBI reaching out and securing servers running unpatched versions of Microsoft Exchange. I share how the First Circuit Court has upheld citizens' rights to secretly record police, And later in the show, my conversation with Grant Hosford, he's CEO of CodeSpark, we're discussing the impacts of the U.S.'s digital divide and what he believes local government should do to ensure students have the tools they need to succeed in an increasingly online world. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms FedCyber. That's aka.ms FedCyber. All right, Ben, uh, we got some good stuff to cover this week. Why don't you start things off for us?
2: So I've done it, Dave. I have a story that involves both Joseph Cox and Professor Oren Kerr. <laughs> okay. We've reached, wow. We've reached ultimate caveat. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So the main story is a Joseph Cox story, uh, but Professor yeah. Kerr did have a take on it, uh, which, which I will get to. <laughs> uh, right. So the story is about the FBI being able to access computers, hundreds of computers around the country, to delete Microsoft Exchange hacks. So as everybody knows, there was this high-profile hack of Microsoft Exchange servers. Mm -hmm. The suspected uh, hackers are Chinese. And the United States, both in the public and private sector, have been trying to both recover from the hack and try to prevent hacks of a similar nature in the future. One of the methods of recovering from the hack, of course, is encouraging users to download the recommended patches uh, to fix these security flaws. As you and I both know, not everybody does that. No, Some people just forget to do it. Some people don't have the institutional knowledge. And, you know, some people just aren't technologically equipped to get those patches in. So the FBI, not wanting to leave all of these devices vulnerable, applied for a warrant from a court to get approval to access hundreds of computers across the country running vulnerable versions of the Microsoft Exchange server in order to remove web shells left by hackers who had earlier penetrated the system. So this is a relatively radical step that law enforcement is taking. It is entirely within the confines of the law. uh, And that's where Professor Kerr's analysis comes in. So according to regulations that were changed just a couple of years ago relating to magistrates issuing nationwide warrants to search devices, there's a provision as part of that rule that any investigation of a computer crime, of a hacking crime, where the computers have been damaged without authorization and are located in five or more districts across the country, that qualifies for those these types of nationwide broad warrants. And mm. that's exactly what the FBI obtained here. We mm. used to have this problem where... You know, a magistrate judge in Virginia could only grant approval to access a device in Virginia. That Mm -hmm. was becoming untenable in the current Internet age, where especially on the dark web, it's very hard to track where people actually are physically. So the FBI has changed those rules. Uh, And as part of those changes, they've contemplated the very scenario at play here where there's been a nationwide hack. It's affected computers, uh, devices all across the country. And law enforcement has the authority to go in and get general approval for these devices across the country to access those machines and remove these web shells. Uh, So this is the first high-profile use uh, of this authority, in my view. Joseph Cox was able to obtain uh, some of the court records, and uh, it's just a a really fascinating case.
0: Yeah, it really is. And uh, I have to say, uh, last night, as as news of this broke, uh, as we're recording this, uh, my Twitter feed was alight with cybersecurity folks who had, I would say, both raised eyebrows and perhaps a few dropped jo- jaws that uh, <laughs> this was going on. You know, like. And so, I've been trying to think of, you know, sort of a, an analogy
2: here. Uh, Me too. I want to hear yours first, then well, I'll give you
0: mine. So mine is is that if your house is on fire, uh, the fire department doesn't need your permission to put it out.
2: Yeah, I think that's pretty close. Yeah, what's well, yours? What I would say is, let's say somebody planted an explosive device in your home. Mm. The government could obtain a warrant to go in. With, and let's say you know you're out of town or something. The government right. could obtain a warrant, or maybe you don't have the keys to your house. I realize this metaphor is getting uh, extended <laughs> as I, as I go on. <laughs> but they can get a warrant to go in and defuse that bomb, even though it's on your property largely right. for the public good because if that bomb goes out it might you know burn down houses across the neighborhood it might sure. inspire other bomb attacks at individual houses other people you know might try and put hand grenades in houses and businesses <laughs> so that seems to be what's going on here is you have this, this is a nationwide vulnerability uh, because mm-hmm. are
0: we okay in that case does this rise to the level of an issue of national security can we use that, that phrase?
2: Uh, I'm so reticent to use that phrase because that okay. opens up Pandora's box of, okay. well, this is national security. We can do anything. Right, uh, right. Which okay. I'm hesitant to do. I mean, I, I don't think it's far-fetched to say this is a national security issue when we're talking about a hack that has such far-reaching effects and right. on a server that's so broadly used.
0: And that we think it's a foreign adversary who's... Taking advantage of this weakness in the exchange
2: servers. Right. We suspect that it is a foreign adversary. Right.
0: Is, is alleged.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think there certainly are national security interests at play here, which probably is the reason why FBI was able to obtain this approval. If mm-hmm. this had been, you know, I'm not sure if this was a non-nation state or, you know, the proverbial fat guy in his bedroom who was able to infiltrate a bunch of servers would the FBI still have been able to obtain this authority? I'm not entirely sure because this is such, we're re- requiring a certain set of circumstances uh, to be able to use something that really does invade people's privacy. Yeah. Um, you know, this article talked about how they didn't just go and access these web shells to remove them, but, you know, there's they're entering passwords, they're taking an evidentiary copy of the web shell, they're issuing a command uh, through each of the web shells. So it's a little more than just, you know, running into the house and grabbing that bomb. It's uh, yeah. you know, doing a little maintenance as well, maybe <laughs> tightening, Tight, right. tightening the latches on the locks.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me, too. I was reading the press release from the Department of Justice on this, and it's interesting how specific they're being about what they did not do. In other words, you know, they, they went in and they removed the web shells, which is the Basically, the software that the bad guys put in to allow them to do other things, to download additional malware, to take control of the server, and do those sorts of things. So, the FBI went in and removed those web shells, but they did not go looking for any additional malware that may have already been installed. So, that's up to the the folks who. Um, basically, they're they're stopping the flow of malware onto the device, but. Uh, it's still up to the people who have the servers to go and check and make sure that nothing else bad has happened. It's also interesting to me that the FBI has said they're making a good faith effort to reach out to everyone who's Server they touched by sending them an email from yeah, like, from an FBI. Hey, account. just to let you know, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Which I suppose is like uh, it's like those little notices you get in your luggage when you're yes, when you're flying. TSA, yeah, yeah, your, yeah.
2: <laughs> right, right, exactly. But this is um, almost humorous to me because the very devices that the FBI was targeting here belong to people who wouldn't have, for whatever reason, downloaded security patches. So Mm -hmm. it's likely that these people aren't the type of people who are going to completely understand an email coming from the FBI, you know, saying that we've gained access to your device. I think that that might actually cause some panic among people who don't realize that this is a a legal authority that the government has. And I hate to use this terminology, but I I really believe that they're doing this for the public good. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you you want to protect not just individual devices, but networks that exist all across the country.
0: Yeah. You understand uh, how this is making folks a little uncomfortable? Does that, that resonate with you as well?
2: Absolutely. Of course. I mean, it's extremely bizarre. You know, if if you were to just approach this story in a vacuum, that yeah. – the FBI can legally access our devices and can be active on our devices to remove those web shells uh, and do a bunch of different other things. Like That would be eye-opening to somebody who wouldn't understand the full context of the story. And again, we are balancing risks and rewards here. So I certainly would understand somebody saying... I understand the severity of this hack and the potential damage that it could do, but that does not justify this intrusion into personal devices. I would completely understand that viewpoint. I think it's a a really difficult policy question. I think Mm -hmm. the government has answered this policy question. They've set up a process Mm -hmm. where this is something that magistrate judges per Department of Justice rules have the ability to do.
0: Right, right. And I suppose it's comforting that A warrant is required.
2: Yes, yes. This went in front of a judge, so it's not just the FBI, as you see in uh, in other contexts, particularly uh, in the national security context, using warrantless authorities to perform, you know, this type of signals intelligence or you know any intrusion into somebody's devices. Mm -hmm. So it is comforting that this was reviewed by a magistrate judge. You know, they presumably uh, reviewed the full scope of exactly what the FBI was trying to do here, how many devices uh, it needed to go into approximately. So yeah, this did all go in front of a, a federal magistrate which means there's some level of judicial review. And I think that is, that is comforting. Now, mm-hmm. for the people whose devices have been accessed, there's very little they can do here. I mean, they don't really have a cause of action. Really, their only choice is to complain uh, in public and, and get this into the political realm, mm. which is always possible. But, of mm-hmm. course, the FBI can come back and say, look, we are being <laughs> proactive and using all of our legal authorities to protect the country against this really destructive hack.
0: Yeah. And you should have patched your server. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. You had one
0: job. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. We 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 gave you every opportunity to do the right thing. And so, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean I will oh, say man. that the National Security Agency, as the story was coming out yesterday as we're recording, mm-hmm. did not tweet about this story in particular, but they did tweet just coincidentally a blog post from Microsoft recommending new security patches, including ones (laughs) related to uh, server vulnerabilities. So, you know, it's sort of perhaps a wink and a nod saying, I'd hate to see what happens uh, to your device if you don't download these security patches.
0: Yeah, I suppose in some ways this is a bit of a recalibration for everyone to realize that this is a capability that federal law enforcement both has and is willing to use.
2: Yeah, I think it's a wake-up call. We think of our devices as our property. They generally are. They are in our domain. We have physical control of them. Mm-hmm. But there are ways that the government can access information on our devices if we aren't taking proper uh, security precautions with our own devices. Right.
0: Just like if they need to come look around in your house, they can do so, but they got to get a warrant.
2: Yeah, exactly. They can't do so arbitrarily or without cause. Mm-hmm. But if they get some sort of judicial approval, yeah, they absolutely have that right. No private yeah. property right in any realm is absolute, especially if an intrusion has been granted by a judicial authority.
0: Right. All right. Well, interesting stuff. And dare I say, interesting
2: times. Uh. Very interesting times. <laughs> and and yeah. really a, a fascinating story that I think we're just kind of processing it now. I mean, it's only been 24 hours. and I think there's going to be some second-order effects of this revelation that we'll be talking about for a long time.
0: Yeah. My story this week uh, uh, comes—actually, it's a press release, I suppose, from the uh, EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and uh, they are praising the uh, First Circuit Court, which upheld uh, the First Amendment right to secretly audio-record the police— this is a topic that has come up here on this show before. I believe, uh, I can't remember if it was here or over on the Cyberwire. I expressed my uh, skepticism when it comes to prosecutors using wiretapping statutes uh, when people are recording the police in the course of their duties. You and I live in Maryland, which is a uh, two party consent state, which yep. means if you want to record somebody, both parties have to give consent. And so there have been cases here. In our great state, where someone has recorded the police and then has later found themselves prosecuted because they were technically violating the wiretapping statute. So in this case, the First Circuit Court, which uh, doesn't cover Maryland, but covers a lot of the Northeast, has uh, said they they struck down as unconstitutional a Massachusetts anti-eavesdropping wiretapping statute that prohibits secret audio recording of police officers. It's fascinating to me because one of the the reasons they state here is that sometimes if you're publicly recording the police, the police can retaliate against you for doing that. And
2: they frequently and so, do, yeah.
0: And they frequently do, and so they make the case here that there's a, a public interest in the secret recording of the police to avoid that retaliation, and I find that fascinating as well. What do you make of all this, Ben?
2: It's a really interesting decision, and I can see why the EFF is celebrating it. So there was another decision that the circuit made about 10 years ago in a different case where a person was recording police action in the Boston Common on his cell phone. And in that case, he was recording audio and video without law enforcement's consent, but it was obvious to, or at least should have been obvious to law enforcement officials that this person had a cell phone and was recording. So that right. meant it didn't violate their reasonable expectation of privacy. So that left this question open, what happens if somebody is surreptitiously, secretly recording an interaction with law enforcement? And mm. what the court is saying here is the interest of the First Amendment, uh, the newsworthiness of police interactions – Uh, and the importance of these interactions for the public discourse supersede the Massachusetts statute. So the end result of this is now law enforcement officers in the First Circuit are going to have to be aware that people have the constitutional right without the fear of retaliation and without the consent of the officer to record audio of police interactions. Uh, Hmm. And I think it's a, a really important and groundbreaking decision. Now, we have not seen this adopted in other circuits. They reference uh, a Tenth Circuit case here uh, where a similar case was brought up to that court, but they sort of punted on this particular issue. But it'll be really interesting to see if other circuits adopt the First Circuit's reasoning here. I mean, I think the reasoning is particularly compelling. I think it would have a major chilling effect on the First Amendment and on transparency if people weren't able to surreptitiously record law enforcement interactions. Think about all of the national conversations we've had around policing over the last 10 years because of some of these types of audio and video recordings. And when law enforcement, you could say, well, why don't you just get law enforcement to consent? Or, you know, why don't you give law enforcement notice by very publicly, you know, illustrating your desire to record? That means Mm -hmm. that law enforcement uh, not only might retaliate, but also might not act candidly as they would if there were not audio and video recordings. And right. I think it's important that the public knows, you know, uh, how law enforcement people act when they don't think that they're being recorded. I think that yeah. is a matter of the public interest.
0: Boy, I mean, it's really been eye opening to me. And I'm certainly not alone in this over the past few years as we've seen the ubiquity of recording devices. that Everyone's carrying one in their pocket on their mobile device. And what that has meant to our perception of Law enforcement. I mean, just how it's, I know for me, I don't know about you, but it's really opened my eyes to a lot of uh, things I was simply unaware of, ignorant of, you know, um, I think the all things of us that, were. Yeah. Yeah. I did. We none of us. Oh, not none of us. Many of us, <laughs> people like you and I, I think of a certain type of privilege. Yeah, yeah yes. of a certain type of privilege, uh, had the privilege of not being aware of this, and so to have our eyes opened to it uh, has really been quite something. And so, um, my personal opinion is that I think it's a good thing that we're continuing our ability to sort of uh, ferret out what may be going on uh, if we have problematic law enforcement uh, actions here. So again, I'm saying I'm with the EFF here. I think this is a good thing.
2: I think so, too. And I think this is a well-reasoned decision by uh, the First Circuit, which really has to balance a couple of competing interests here. There is not only the interest of law enforcement, but the interest in trying to defer to the state of Massachusetts as it enacts its own statutes. They're not looking to declare Massachusetts state statutes unconstitutional. But, you know, when you have this type of issue here where you'd be eliminating a source of transparency on law enforcement, then I think those First Amendment interests certainly trump the interests of the Massachusetts state legislature to pass these types of eavesdropping statutes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a, a very important decision. Uh, I'm curious to see if this is reflected in other circuits. Maybe it's not. we got a circuit split, and then maybe, perhaps uh, we'd be on the road to the Supreme Court for mm. this type of case.
0: Yeah. All right, well, we will have a link to uh, all of the stories we talked about today. And, of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call in. It's 410-618-3720 or email us to caveat at cyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Grant Hosford. He's the CEO of a company called CodeSpark. And our discussion centered around uh, his perception of the USA's digital divide and what governments could do to help ensure students have the tools they need to succeed. Here's my conversation with Grant Hosford.
1: You know, a year ago, we really found ourselves on our back foot, right? The pandemic exposed the fact that we have not invested in connectivity for all the families who need it around the country, we had estimates in California, for example, of as many as a million kids who didn't have internet access at the start of the pandemic, for a variety of reasons. You know, they're in a rural area; the um, internet in their area just isn't strong enough to support multiple people. They don't have a device at home, etc. So. I think it exposed a lot of weakness in a system that relies on the internet to deliver a lot of the educational content that we consume. However, I am happy that we seem to be moving in a better direction. In general, I think a lot of heavy lifting has been done at the district level, and it's pretty impressive what many of the more organized districts have been able to accomplish. I think you know, what I'd like to see is uh, national policy around connectivity. Right. I think you guys recently had a a podcast about how you know security and cybersecurity and privacy is becoming a fundamental right. And you know, we believe that internet access and connectivity and an understanding of computational thinking is similar, right? It's something that you must have in order to thrive in society. And I think the trend toward delivering education via the Internet is only going to continue. I think it's going to be amazing when we get kids back in school, you know, at the end of this school year or certainly by next school year. But we're still going to be using a lot of digital tools. So we need to make sure everyone has access. That's where things start.
0: Is this kind of like I mean you know a hundred years ago when when our nation set about with a you know a rural electrification program you know to mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine that there was a time when lots of people didn't have electricity <laughs> you know we consider it a basic uh, fundamental part of of survival these days but they didn't. And yep. I, I can't wonder if there's a. Or I can't help wondering if there's a comparison here that it's an essential service, and yet it's surprising to those of us who live in well-connected areas. I think sometimes it's surprising how many people live in areas that aren't as fortunate as us.
1: Yeah, eighteen million Americans have no internet access at all, which is a wow. you know, it's a big number, and as I mentioned in California at the beginning of the pandemic, it was one million kids, you know, and and coincidentally, not only did we um, add electricity to homes uh, 100 years ago, but about the same time, we added math to curriculum all around mm. the country, right? And the same thing is currently happening with computational thinking. And so we've got these two things that go hand in hand, internet access and understanding how software works, right, and how software kind of runs our world today. And they're being more and more understood as fundamental to success, but I think we're in the early days of it. So I think people like you, you know, help spread the word that this is something that all people should be concerned about, and that we really should fight for, right? Everyone should have this access, and, and in particular, we need to make sure that low-income families get the access they need so their kids don't fall farther and farther behind.
0: Help me understand, uh, when you talk about um, your computational thinking, what does yeah. that encompass?
1: Well, the buzzword that you'll hear in our industry is coding, right? Teach kids to code. And that is part of what CodeSpark does, for example. But, but really, it begins with what we would call computational thinking, which is two things. It's understanding how computers work and what they're good at. A lot of kids are surprised when they realize that computers aren't smart. They're actually really dumb. They're just super fast right? They do exactly what you tell them to do uh, and exactly the way you tell them to do it, but they can do that crazy, crazy fast and over and over and over again. So understanding, you know, how to use technology for problem solving is really critical to taking whatever a kid is good at naturally and, you know, kind of giving them superpowers, right? It's taking whatever they want to do, whether it's be a ballet dancer or be a, you know, an athlete or, or be a doctor, you have it, technology is going to help them do their job. And so they don't all have to be programmers, but it's going to be really helpful to be able to sit down with a programmer and think about problem solving together. And so that's what we're bringing to the classroom, is helping both students and teachers understand. How software works, how they can use it, and the fact that it's not actually that intimidating. That once you understand the basics, you know, you can do some pretty sophisticated things even at a young age.
0: How do we go about making room for this in the curriculum? You know, when there's so many requirements already, how do we make space for it?
1: Well, it's a great question. And it's actually something we address head on. We launched about a year and a half ago what we call Story Coder and we heard from teachers exactly what you just said like look we love the idea of teaching coding in the classroom we totally agree that it's important we don't have time for it we're already held to so many other standards and you know test prep etc and so what we've done is we've made coding something that can be used in any subject right and so you can use our platform to do a book report you can tell a story about history you could act out a story problem in math, for example, and I think that's the way you're going to see coding and computational thinking evolve is that while you could choose to study it on its own, more and more it's going to be kind of a toolbox that you use to solve problems across multiple subjects, and that's the approach we're taking anyways, and it gives teachers time back in their day. Now they can do two things at once. Hmm.
0: How are you ensuring that, you know, groups who have traditionally been underrepresented, uh, you know, certainly when it comes to coding, you've got women and, and people of color. Yeah. How do you bring them along? How do you, how do you make them feel um, like they're welcome?
1: Yeah, part of it is we've been thinking about how to connect with girls and with uh, brown and black students since before the company was founded. So the inspiration for CodeSpark was actually my two daughters when they were young. When they were six and four, they asked me how computers work. And I thought that was a super cool question. So I went looking for an ABCs of computer science, assuming that existed in a world that's you know run by software. And I couldn't find anything. And that really shocked me. And then I dug into statistics around whether coding was being taught in elementary school or not. And the answer was largely no. You know, 90% plus of elementary schools weren't teaching it. And so when we built CodeSpark Academy, our, our platform, we made sure from the beginning through testing that girls thought it was interesting, right? And so what does that mean? Well, for example, they like to know the why. Uh, of what they're doing and so Mm. our puzzles have you helping little characters solve problems and in the early days it was just have the character make it to a goal but there was no story behind the goal and girls were completing the puzzles at a rate lower than boys when we Mm. changed the puzzles so that there was a specific and overt goal like help the police foo get her donuts back, or help the construction foo, but our characters are called foos, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the, help, yeah, I realize that's, that's not clear. So we have these little characters called foos, and you help them through a variety of situations. So one of them is, you help the construction foo find his tools that have been lost, right? And so when we added just a little bit of story to these puzzles, and had that story continue throughout each chapter, the completion rates for girls not only went up, but they became equal with the completion rates for boys. right? And so there's little subtle things that you have to do to make sure that both boys and girls are excited about what you're doing. And then the other thing we do and have done since the beginning is we test every single new feature with a really wide variety of kids, kids from low income backgrounds, kids from high income backgrounds, kids from parents who are exposed to technology, kids whose parents aren't exposed to technology, et cetera, et cetera. And by doing that from day one, we've built a platform that really, you know, truly does work for all kids.
0: What are you seeing in in terms of kids' ability to catch up? You know, I'm thinking of, you know, my kids, because of who I am and what I do, you know, they yeah. were using iPads as soon as they, as soon as their hands started working, you know, like, but, <laughs> Right. but, but, but yeah. not every, not, not every kid is uh, uh, exposed to that. And so can kids who haven't had that advantage throughout some of those really early years, what sort of things are you seeing? Are Are they able to catch up with their peers? Is there, is there an equalization that can take
1: place? For sure. I mean, look, the earlier it happens, the better, right? I'm not going to mm-hmm. argue against that. However, what we see, so what does CodeSpark Academy teach? It teaches fundamental concepts behind all programming languages that you would need to know no matter what you know programming you're eventually going to do. So it really is fundamental knowledge. And because exposure to computer science in the U.S. is currently really uneven, it's getting better and better in that it is becoming part of curriculum. It is being introduced at younger and younger ages. However, because of our system, you know, district by district policies, it's hodgepodge. And so, what we see that's really great is that our program works equally well for kindergartners as it does for fourth and fifth graders who haven't yet been exposed to computer science. The older kids just move faster, right? They just mm. master things more quickly. They get to the point at which they're creating artifacts more quickly. One of the things you can do on our platform is you can make your own video games and you can make your own interactive stories. Imagine a comic strip come to life. So they get to that point quickly, but they're learning the same things in the same progression. And that is one of the nice things about computer science in general, is that the curriculum is very consistent state to state, even country to country.
0: You know, I I, I have I've occasionally been called in to uh, help my own children with their math homework, and <laughs> one thing I've discovered is that um, they have uh, totally outstripped me in their, in their capabilities. <laughs> not not only is my memory bad and how to do things, but you know the way that they do things in math is different than what I learned. Yeah. Um but they're just learning things so much earlier than than I think my generation did certainly. What sort of resources are there for the kids who are excelling at this but don't have parents there to help answer their questions?
1: Yeah, I mean that's one of the exciting things about what's happening in edtech and you know there are other tools that do what we do. I can speak most eloquently about CodeSpark Academy. CodeSpark Academy does the teaching for the parent or for the teacher. We assume that the adults in the child's life have not been exposed to computer science and Mm. that we need to give them all the resources they need within the app right and if you are advanced and moving forward we unlock more content for you and and let you use those advanced capabilities if you're struggling we help you figure out how to practice the things that you're struggling with and that i think in a nutshell encapsulates the promise of edtech right it's it's been uneven to date i think we've seen a lot of Ed tech wrapped in chocolate-covered broccoli, where it's like, hey, if you learn this thing, then you get to go do something fun. That's right. <laughs> not really the true promise of ed tech, right? The true promise of ed tech is that you do something that you think is interesting, and you learn along the way. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, our platform delivers on that, and more and more you're seeing other platforms teaching a variety of subjects, frankly, deliver on that as well.
0: Grant, do you ever, do you find that the, you know, the parents are um, quietly creating accounts for themselves? <laughs> <be able> <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's actually one of one of our favorite things is that we found out there you know just like uh, in the past, there was like Club Penguin and things like that, and parents would right. secretly have accounts. We definitely have uh, parents who are making games, in particular. Like so, so parents who grew up, you know, are millennial parents and grew up with video games. They love the fact that they can make their own uh, Mario-style games on the platform, and they make cool stuff. And and the kid and the parent will challenge each other with their games, mm. which is mm-hmm. pretty fun.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we're all hoping that we're going to be able to get kids back in the classroom as soon as possible. What's your outlook for that? What do you see ahead?
1: So I I see it as being mostly a very positive experience where kids are quite resilient, catch up pretty quickly, and for the most part are, are fine. I think my biggest worry is two things one i think we'll get caught up in a lot of unnecessary debates around testing where we try to pretend that things are normal when in fact we've had a once in a century event throw off everybody's learning i don't know what the benefit would be of trying to pretend that things are normal right we should just call things the way they are, skip testing for a year, get back to it next year, and just focus on you know any fundamental knowledge that people missed out on. I think the other big thing I'm concerned about is for some students, this has been super hard, and I think their loss of interest and confidence in education is potentially damaging long-term. I don't think it's the majority, but I see that in actually one of my two daughters, where Distance learning was just really hard for her. She didn't love school before, and now she really doesn't like school. And she mm. feels like she's not doing well at it. And I've been reading a lot about this, and it's it's a concern nationwide. And so I think what we want our teachers to focus on is finding those students who have been disaffected by what's been going on for the last year, and really lean in to getting them back into the groove. I think that's probably the best way we can spend time this next school year as we try to try to recover.
0: Ben, what do you think?
2: Well, first of all, uh, it certainly made me jealous that Mr. Hosford is doing work that's so uh, valuable to society and uh, improving the outcomes for our nation's children. Um, Mm. I wish you and I could have that uh, much of a profound impact on the world. Maybe we think we do with our podcast here, but um, (laughs) I was just inspired by uh, the mission of CodeSpark and what Grant and his team are doing. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, their work carries on extra meaning now that we're a year plus into this pandemic and many students across the country are still doing some form of online learning. And right. you have these major equity problems where people, for whatever reason, as he talks about, lack Internet access. Maybe they live in a rural area. Maybe they live in a crowded urban area where multiple people aren't able to have fast Internet on a device in a given household. And maybe that would have been an inconvenience 14 months ago. And now it's it's a crisis um, yeah. because that's going to stunt learning on behalf of our children. And it's going to be a major problem for equity. Uh, so... I'm just uh, very glad that he's doing the work that he's doing. And, you know, as he said, hopefully we can all get back to in-person learning full time. But, you know, we can take some of the lessons we learned from this pandemic about, you know, ensuring equal access to the Internet, which is something that I think should be seen as a fundamental right if, you know, it's so important in the context of education. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, uh, we appreciate uh, Grant Hosford uh, taking the time to speak to us. So you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Six Sense, visit Sixsense.com. We want to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpe. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.